Amen. Good morning. How are you doing? Hey, will you turn me on over there? I don't think I'm on. Are we doing good? Good. I don't need that thing. All right. Hey, my name is Luke. It's nice to meet you. I'm one of the pastors here. I'm the teaching pastor. If we haven't met, I look forward to maybe meeting you a little bit later on. Go ahead and turn in your Bibles to 2 Corinthians, if you have it with you, or if you're using an app. As I like to say in these services every single week, that is the passage that is going to help us the most and show us Christ most clearly, I think. 2 Corinthians 8. Um, while you're turning there, I walked into my house a few days ago and found this fish bowl in my kitchen with some money in there. Looks like there's a five and two ones. And the only time I ever see something like this in public is if it's a tip jar, like at, you know, Starbucks or something, you're used to putting it in there, a little bit of a donation. Or I was explaining what a cuss jar was to my son on the way to church this morning. When I grew up going to work, there was always a cuss jar, you know, and there's some mornings you're pulling the wallet out before you even clock in because you know you're about to have that day, right? So I walk in and I see it, and the only time I think about this is whenever someone's cussing or donating money, and I'm saying, what is this for? Why do we have this jar in our kitchen? And my wife said, you know, I'm teaching the kids about generosity with their money. Kids get a little bit of an allowance. They're mowing the lawn, they're wiping baseboards, doing all kinds of stuff, and so we use that as an opportunity to teach them how to see treasure and how to handle it. Now, what's funny is the interaction visually with our kids. I'm hearing Paula talk about this, and my daughter, my middle daughter, um, she's super into giving away money. It's almost like she doesn't have a realistic view of what it is, because as soon as she gets it, she gives it away. You want some money? Here you go. You want more? Just ask. Here it is. She'll just give it away. Money has no grip on her heart at all, right? My son, however, he goes, well, every dollar I put in there is a dollar I don't have for airsoft ammo or, you know, a movie I want to rent or something. So he kind of does this thing. It's not really rolling your eyes, but it's like a half notch below rolling your eyes where you just kind of raise your eyebrows, eyebrows like kind of breathe in a little bit and walks away like that. And that's how I knew that he was super excited about the, the giving jar. Now, it sounds like I'm throwing him under the bus, doesn't it? But that's how all of our hearts are, realistically. My heart is like his face when it comes to generosity a lot of times. That's how mankind is. It's how we're pre-wired. Our factory setting to come out of the womb is not to be generous with our money, right? But to take the money out and put it back in our pocket and then just fill that with cheese crackers or whatever else and then go sit in front of the TV. That is our heart, what I just did. It's mine anyway. It's my money. I had plans for this money. So today I want to talk about that impulse. That impulse in us She's watching to see if I put that money back in the jar. Um, the impulse in us to hoard money, to stack bills, and to not be generous with it. That impulse that we have. I don't really have time today to talk about what the Bible teaches us as regards saving money, or investing money, or budgeting, or things like that. And the Bible has a lot to talk about on that. It has a lot to speak on. But those are different sermons. Today I want to focus on being generous with treasure. Now, I'm going to use that word a lot today, treasure. I want you to think not so much dollar bills, but collective wealth. We have a lot of things that we call treasure. It could be a 401k. It could be any investment, really. It could be your vehicle. It could be your skinny jeans. It could be whatever you want it to be. I mean, your treasure, the things that you hold valuable, your jet ski, 
bitcoins, whatever else, any, anything that we can invent that says this is valuable to me and is my treasure. I want you to think collective wealth today. And this teaching gets a super duper bad rap, doesn't it? Nobody likes to preach on this because nobody likes to hear about it, right? So pastors don't like to preach on it. And sure enough, some of you are uncomfortable right now because anytime a pastor brings this subject up, it means one of two things. One is he's about to pass the plate, right? Because before you pass the plate, it's always really good, allegedly, to preach on generosity, to make you feel double-dog dirty for not being so generous, right? It pretty much ensures a big giving week that week. Listen, relax. We don't even own any offering plates. We don't even have any to pass. Not passing any. I'm not taking up a special offering today. So just exhale, all right? The second thing we think that preachers are going to do is make us feel very guilty inside, very condemned with how we've handled our money, our treasure, in the past, right? I want you to relax there too. Let me remind you that there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ. So you've been bad with your money? Jesus died for that. He gave up his wealth, his treasure, and he died on the cross, and he gave you a perfectly lived life. There is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus, yet we still are going to teach on it. Now some of you I've been very good with your giving. And when I say giving, I'm not just talking about Legacy Church. I just mean into the kingdom in general. You've been good kingdom givers. And I want to thank you for that. And maybe this teaching will go along to be a good encouragement for you. Maybe a little bit of a reminder for you. Some of you, you have kids. Or you're going to have kids. Let, let me help you today by what good generosity looks like out of the passages of the Bible. Because it's not my job to teach your kids. It's actually your job. So let me help you in that way. Some of us, however, we struggle with this. Maybe the bulk of us. I want to ask you the question, why, why does talking about this bother you? Why does it bother you? Just think about it for a second. Luke brings up money. I feel weird inside all of a sudden. This was the day I should have missed. After all, the game was late last night. The leaves are turning. Why am I here? I've screwed up. It's too late to walk out. You know, I mean, why does this bother you so much? I think the real reason, I think, that our treasure is the currency we use to pay off our idols. Some people say that we idolize money. Maybe that's true. I think we use it as the currency, however, to pay our idols. I want a reputation or an identity. It's going to cost me some money. If I want some security, I'm going to have to invest and save right? If I want, I don't know, power, if I want glory, if I want recognition, it's going to cost me something. Comfort, peace, it's going to cost me something. Some of you, you might not be convinced as of this point in a sermon like this that you struggle with money as a type of idol or something you use to pay your idols. But have you ever wondered in your mind, or even said out loud, if I just made 20% more, then I would have a better life. If I just made that much, I mean, not a whole bunch, I'm not asking for a lot, but that much more, I would have a better life. If I just got that house, that car, if I just got that thing, I would be happier. If I could just save up this amount of money, here's a big one, especially in East Tennessee. If I could just save up this much money, then, then, I'd be happy. I'd be enjoying it. If you have thought that or said that, that is a signature statement that there are idols that you are beholding higher than Christ himself. It's a signature statement. 
It's a trap. That's what the Bible calls it. Look, we're going to put some passages up on the screen, but I want you to stay in 2 Corinthians, okay? Because there's going to be some I fly through very fast, and this might be one of them. 1 Timothy 6 says in verse 9, But those who desire to be rich, we're going to talk about that in a minute, fall into temptation, into a snare, which is a trap. It's It's a trap. Into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is a root of all kinds of evils. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Listen, how you handle your treasure is a key indicator of your spiritual life. It's a key and primary indicator of your worship. Our temptation, and we know this because the Bible tells us in Matthew 6, is wherever your treasure is going to be found, there your heart's going to be quickly right after it. In fact, they're, in fact, the same thing at the same time at the same place, your treasure and your heart. We don't like that, though. We work really hard as mankind to detach our treasure from our heart. We want to shoebox them in different shoeboxes. Keep the church out of my money, keep my money out of the church. We want to keep those things very separate, but you can't. You simply cannot sever the tie between your treasure and your worship. Our culture has tried this even. Our culture has tried this and has failed. Our culture even agrees that you can't do that. Way back in, I say way back in the day, I don't know how many years ago this was. I feel ancient for even saying this, but there was an old rap song Snoop Dogg had, and he ripped off some verses out of an old Tupac song, and it was this, I've got my mind on my money and my money on my... There you go. See, I don't feel so old all of a sudden. Yeah. Right? The culture knows that. Wherever my heart goes, that's where my money is and vice versa. It knows it can't separate the two. So what our culture says is get rich or die trying. Put your heart into it. Put your guts into it. Get rich or die trying. But whenever we become Christians, we tweak it a little bit. And then what we say is, is I can get rich and chase bills, but I also need to chase God. And I could do both at the exact same time. Could do both at the same time. Our culture says that, and our flesh says that, but Jesus never says this. Jesus says different things. So in this series that we're doing, stuff that Jesus never said, I want to look at Matthew 6.24. Again, this will be up on the screen. It says this, You or no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. So Jesus is here saying, you either serve God with your money or you serve money as your God. It's one of those two. There is no third alternative. Jesus had a lot to say on money. 25% of his overall teaching in the New Testament deals with treasure to some shape, form, or degree. 25%. That's a massive amount. In fact, he has a lot of warnings for those who are rich, for those who are wealthy. And right there is where some of you want to check out, isn't it? How many of us have read the Bible? And we get to the passages that are warnings for the wealthy or the rich, and we cruise right through them because we say to ourselves, I'm not rich. And if I was, certainly I wouldn't have a problem like that. If I was rich, then certainly I wouldn't be where this guy is that's getting warned. Luke, I'm not rich. I'm just trying to get by. I don't even want to be rich. Some of you, you might even feel like your poverty excludes you from generosity. That poverty removes you from being generous. So you're quick to bow out. I want to caution you on two fronts. 
I want to caution you right now. One, be careful how poor you say you are. Be careful. I've got a good friend. He's becoming a much better friend over time. His name is Patrick King. He works here in the city. He planted a church here um, and pastored it for a while. And, and now he works with a couple guys here in this church. And we were talking about this at a Bible study this week, Monday, realistically. So we're talking about this desire to say how poor we are. And he said he kind of got off on the, the novelty uh, early in his marriage that, hey, we're just a cute, young, poor couple, you know, like on TV, like on the movies. Look how cute it is. We don't make much money, right? Isn't this fun? Our humble beginnings, our small days. And then one day as he's driving down the road, he felt God warn him not to say that anymore. So he told his wife, Babe, can we just not say that anymore? Can we just not say how poor we are anymore? Because the real story is, is if I lost my job today and my house burned down tomorrow, we're never going to live on the street. We know people. We'll always have a place to stay. It's not impossible for me to get another job. These things can be replaced. We're just not poor. And he's right. Here's a newsflash. If you live in America, you're rich. If you live in the United States, you are wealthy. What this means is that Jesus is talking to us, not the others, not the ones that live in Sequoia Hills. He's talking to us. Right now, the average median income per household in Knox County is $33,188. That's the best figures I could get my hands on currently. $33,188. Some of you are like, that's awful fortune my goodness and some of you were making that 10 years ago that's the average put everyone in a blender that's what you get okay guess what that puts you in the top 0.94 percent of global wealth you're a one percenter congratulations city of knoxville 0.94 you're wealthier than 99.06 percent of the world in fact with what you make in a year at 33,000, you make more than 203 doctors at the same time in Malawi. Think about that. 203 doctors don't even make that much in Malawi. That's amazing. But I knew where your mind was going to go as soon as I gave that number. So I chopped it down a little bit. 18,000. Let's say you make 18,000. According to that, you are in the top 5% of global wealth. You're rich. You're wealthy. You're not a one percenter that you're wealthier than 95% of the world. Again, I know what some of you are thinking, but Luke, gosh, if I made $18,000, i would be like living large. So I went down to $6,000. $6,000! College students are making more than that, even if they don't have a job, because their lives cost more than $500 a month. The increase is coming from somewhere. So let's look at that. $6,000 a year puts you in the top 21% of the world. You're wealthier than quite a bit of people, right? In fact, an average laborer in Ghana, it takes them 37 years to make what you do in one year. You're rich. Congratulations, you've made it. You're wealthy. It doesn't feel like we're one percenters, though, does it? We're never rich. It's always the people above us that are rich. Don't we look at it with some relativity like that? Don't we look at it? We think, we think if, if we're living in a dorm room, I'm not rich. It's the people in West Knoxville that are rich. But guess what they're saying? We're not rich the people on Sequoia Hills that are rich. Go ask some of them. Guess what? They're, it's always the people above us. We're never the ones that are rich. But look at the numbers. When's the last time you thank God that you could flush the toilet and your waste went away? 
because the rest of the world doesn't have that. They have a hole in the ground. When's the last time you had to pull your own teeth? Or thank God that you have a tarp over your head that doesn't have any holes in it so that when the monsoon season comes, you can stay mostly dry. When's the last time we've had to do any of this? We're wealthy. So caution one that I have for you today, caution one is stop being deceived and stop being goofy. You're wealthy. You're welcome. I'm wealthy too. We're rich. We live in America. Caution number two, poverty doesn't ruin generosity. Poverty does not ruin generosity. Let's look at a passage up on the screen. It's going to be Mark 12, if you're taking notes. Mark 12, we're going to start in verse 41. And he, meaning Jesus, sat down opposite the treasury and watched the people putting money into the offering box. See, they had an offering box too. I feel better all of a sudden. I just thought about that. (laughs) Ours is on the door out there. Many rich people put in large sums, and a poor widow came and put in two small copper coins, which make a penny. And he called his disciples to him, and he said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all of those who are contributing to the offering box, for they all contributed out of their abundance, which means it didn't cost them anything. But she, out of her poverty, has put in everything she had, all she had to live on. Do you feel poor? I mean, does it at least feel like you're poor? If you at least feel like you're poor, impoverished, it places you in the perfect place for extravagant worship. You can worship extravagantly, extremely. You can give in a jaw-dropping manner if you feel like you own nothing, because that's exactly what this woman did. Being generous from this place, it shows that she was giving sacrificially, and it paints a realistic picture of how God gave to us. God embraced poverty that we would be able to embrace royalty god took on poverty himself as he came to mankind so that we would be able to reign and be with him in a family seated at a table where there's a banquet that we just don't belong at or deserve to be at paints a picture for us i'm going to tell you what generosity looks like in the bible Jesus leads us to see that generosity actually comes from three distinct things. It comes from us being cheerful, comes from us being sacrificial, and us being good stewards. Those are the three I want to hit today. There are others. These are the big three. We are to be cheerful givers. We are to be sacrificial givers. And we are to be well-managing givers. We are to be good stewards or good managers. The word is pretty much the same thing. And for that, we're going to look at 2 Corinthians 8. Very helpful for us today starts off this way. Paul is talking and he says, we want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. Okay, pause. Macedonia, not in its heyday, okay? Lots of layoffs, big great depression, everything's really sad, severe affliction, people are being chased out of their homes, they're being thrown into jail, families are getting split up, there's Ebola and ISIS and all kinds of weird stuff going on. That's who he's talking about right here. Verse 2, for in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. And this, not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. He's saying, look at the equation. Severe affliction added to abundance of joy added to extreme poverty equals a wealth of generosity. This is extreme giving. 
They're not doing it in moderation. They're not cautioning each other not to be fanatical. This is jaw-dropping giving. It's beautiful. They experience sacrifice. Listen, giving out of abundance is not sacrificing. When you give out of abundance, you don't have to say no to anything else in your life. Whenever you give sacrificially, you have to say no to things so that you can give. That's the whole idea behind it. In other words, if you're giving level into the kingdom of God, and I'm not even talking about Legacy Church, but if you're giving into the kingdom of God requires you say no to nothing, it's not sacrificial. It's not. Me and my wife, our family, we've lived like missionaries. So the church pays us a very little bit. The, the giant lion's share of what we make is from the generosity of partners and families in other states and other places, right? And I remember once in our early days when we were planting our second church in our third campus ministry, when we were right in the thick of it, I remember this young couple coming on our team, right? I didn't think they would. I mean, the meeting wasn't horrible, but it wasn't awesome. I just didn't think they were going to come on our team. But he gave me the phone call, said, hey, Luke, we love you guys. I talked about uh, coming on your support team with my family. We prayed about it, and we decided we're going to come on for $40 a month. And I was like, whoa, wow, that's great. That's fantastic. Thank you so much for that. That's awesome. In the back of my mind, I'm thinking, why 40, though? Why not 50? I mean, we think in round numbers, right? People are always giving like 25, 50, 100. 40? Why 40? And he knew it right when it came out of his mouth. That sounds a little odd, $40. He says, Luke, let me explain. We prayed about what we can give up in our family and sacrifice in order to give, and we decided to cut our cable. We cut it this morning. Check is in the mail. I thought, wow, that 40 had a different aroma to it. I treated it like it was 4 million. It's sacrifice. They're sacrificing on a daily basis so that we could plant churches and campus ministries. Some of you are lost on that. You're trying to figure out what cable company will give you cable for 40 bucks a month, aren't you? <laughs> Inflation. <laughs> well, let me ask you, what is your giving costing you? Again, I'm not talking about Legacy Church. Think kingdom. Think much bigger. What is your giving costing you? What are you having to say no to? Think about it. 2 Corinthians 9. Dance down a little bit, a chapter and a half or so. Same conversation, same guy talking, same people listening, same combo. Paul says this, So I thought it necessary to urge the brothers to go on ahead to you and arrange in advance for the gift you have promised so that it may be ready as a willing gift and not an exaction. Well, that's important right there. The point is this, whoever sows sparingly will also reap sparingly and whoever sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. Each one must give as he has decided in his heart, not reluctantly or under compulsion, for God loves a cheerful giver. Okay, I'm so glad Paul says this right here. What kind of giver he loves the cheerful, the one that's not under compulsion or under weight or the feeling of obligation. Because as a pastor, if I could just let you see behind the curtain a little bit, it's super easy to manipulate big money. That's easy to do. It really is. Guilt gets the job done. I can make you feel guilty. We can put whatever slide up on the screen, show a kid that you can see his ribs or a homeless person eating out of the dumpster, and I could talk to you about how you'll never eat out of a dumpster. Don't you feel bad? You know, and before you know it, you're writing checks. It's just not hard. Not to say that you're easily influenced or puppets. I'm just saying this is what pastors have done over decades and generations. Why? Because it works. And if I can mix in a little bit of, oh, and by the way, the money that you give, you'll get more back. Well, now I've just appealed to two idols. 
guilt and greed at the same time, and it will get the job done. I'm glad that Paul says this. It keeps us honest as pastors. If I could just be honest for one minute, this is why, as a church, historically, we have not passed the plate. Some of you have noticed that. Why doesn't this church pass a plate? In the Deep South, we grow up in the church. And whenever we see the plate coming down the aisle, it's almost like Pavlov's dogs a little bit, right? We start immediately thinking about what we should give so we don't feel bad. And I know how it is, because I was one. We're worshiping, you know, arms in the air, singing. Or maybe you're like this, you're singing. And the plate comes down, and you see it out of the corner of your eye. You see the plate, and you think, oh, gosh, the plate. What do I do? What do I do? What do I do? It's a conundrum, isn't it? I only wanted to give 10, but I have 20. What do I do? Can I make change out of that thing? Someone's going to tackle me if I make change out of that plate. That means I've got to give the whole 20. But I didn't want to give the whole 20. I'll just punt. This week I won't do it. Maybe next week I'll do something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's what I'll do. Next week I'll do something. We don't want to be that guy, the church troll, that takes the plate and moves it on and feel like we're not giving anything. We almost want the whole world around us to know that we give online. I give online. It's cool. Watch. I know I'm passing it, but it doesn't mean I don't give. Why? Because we feel the obligation of giving. It means we must give, and we did not want to have that in this church, so we just killed the whole thing. To our detriment financially, by the way. We canned it. No plates. No plates. We wanted to build a different environment, but I'll be honest with you, we're rethinking it a little bit. Not because we need more money or we want more money, but it is a form of worship. The 20 coming out, the 120 come out, the 520. It is something that you were saying, I am putting this here unto God as a gift cheerfully, and yes, I'm going to say no to things. To you, Lord, I say no to that. I say no to that. I say yes to you. I say yes to this people, the mission, the kingdom, whatever it is. Maybe we should bring it back. Maybe it's something we need to talk about as pastors. We're to be sacrificial. We are to be cheerful, not under obligation. We are to be good stewards. A steward is a manager. A steward is not an owner. Right? An owner is an owner. And God owns everything. Absolutely everything. We own nothing. I think in Deuteronomy, I think around chapter 8, it won't be up on the screen. God says, you think it was your power, your might that got you that wealth? You're fooled. I'm the one that gave you the ability to make wealth. Psalm 50 says, I own all the cattle on all the hills. I own all the birds in the air. Everything that moves through the fields, I own it. James says, all good and perfect gifts come from me, right? We see it in Haggai, I think chapter 2, where he says this, all the gold belongs to me. All the silver belongs to me. Everything belongs to God. Everything. What does that mean today? All the money. All of the stuff we have, all of our investments, all of our treasures, everything that we hold dear, it belongs to Him. We owe nothing. We just manage. We're just stewards. You know, my dad, when he was alive, he owned a bunch of restaurants. He was very innovative, very ingenious. He was a good businessman. And it got up to like six or seven. And there was a time where he had almost a couple hundred employees moving through these companies. And it was interesting. I found him firing managers a lot because he would catch them stealing. Super easy to do. I mean, you're only getting paid X amount per hour. You automatically think that you're worth more than that, right? And if you're the one counting the money every night, it's easy to stick a few bills in your pants and just say, hey, like I just did, I'm worth it. I mean, I'm worth this. I mean, they're never going to miss this. I'm just going to do it. So my dad, 
you know, his bookkeeper, they caught that stuff. So they'd set up little cameras, little sting operations, and put more money in the till than was supposed to be there, you know, to kind of set it up. And canning managers all the time. Why? Because they got confused. They swapped the order. They thought they were owners for a minute. They're not. They're managers. What do you call a manager that steals from the owner? A thief. A thief. We do this when we rearrange the order and we become owners of what someone else already owns, we steal. It's not going to be up on the screen, but in Matthew, not Matthew, Malachi, he says this, God says this, will man rob God? I mean, is it like possible for man to rob God? And he says this, it is. It is, and you do. You rob God. And then the people listening, they say, how do we rob God? God replies, with your generosity, with your giving, the whole nation of you. That's why you're cursed with a curse. What you ought to do is bring your gift of generosity to the storehouse. And that's a whole different sermon, what the storehouse is. That does not mean the local church, by the way. Does not mean the local church. It could be the local church. It doesn't have to be that. But God is saying, I gave you the resources and I gave you instructions. You threw away the instructions. You put the resource in your own pocket and you went on with your life. And that, friends, is stealing. It's thieves. Many of us in here are possibly ripping off God. Stealing from God. And you know what the hilarity of it is, is that a lot of times we're praying that God would help us with our finances, aren't we? God, help me with our finances. Help me with these bills. I need a new job. I need a raise. And we steal from him. Good luck with that. Good luck with that. I've told you, roughly, as fast as I could, what generosity is. It's sacrificial. It's cheerful. And it comes from the hands of a good steward. But I've not really told you why. Why should we do it? Look at 2 Corinthians 8. And this is very important, by the way. So we're dancing upward again in the same passage, same guy, same audience, same conversation. Paul says, I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. This is to be the motor behind our giving. The, the motivation, the fuel behind our giving. Any other reason you could be giving to the kingdom or the church has you in the middle. Has you in the middle. You might write checks so you don't feel so guilty about other people who have it pour off. Or maybe you drank some coffee out there in the foyer and you want to pay it back a little bit. You don't want to feel guilty. You want the peace to come back, so you write checks, right? Maybe for some of you, you want the money to come back to you, so God's an investment. Any other reason besides the gospel that we give of our finances has us in the center. The gospel is something very beautiful, though, especially when it comes to giving. Listen to it. Through the lens of generosity, God the Father, we're talking about God the Father, gave generously. The deepest part of his wealth. The deepest part of his treasure. He could, he could not write a check bigger than Christ coming to earth. And Christ coming to us and our stin, stained, jagged, scandalous, depraved world, he comes and he lives among us. Why? To rescue us from spiritual poverty. Check that. Spiritual bankruptcy. Spiritually we're zeros. And he rescues us from that. 
God the Father is. God the Son. God the Son also gives away a treasure. Where was his treasure? He was firmly entrenched in the Trinity in the fellowship of God eternally. Enamored with God. Enamored with God's glory. Comes to earth for us. Lowers himself. He does not just take on poverty. He takes on sin. Why? To rescue us to glory. To glory. It's beautiful. This is our salvation. The gospel means, friends, that you're wealthy. Maybe not in this life. Maybe not in this world. But you're wealthy. I want to remind you how quick your life is. The Bible calls it a vapor. Have you ever seen a vapor before? It's here and it's gone. It's here and it's gone. Eternity is long. Eternity is forever. And we have a wealth, a treasure trove that we have access to. Not just then, but even now. We're wealthy. What does this mean? It means that all of our comfort can be in Jesus. Because He's the one that wins our rest. Dollars don't provide our rest. Christ, coming out of a, a, a tomb, provides our rest. This means that Jesus gives us our identity. Money can't give us any identity. Our treasure can't do that. Jesus did. Why? He clothed us with His righteousness. We look like Him. It means that we have our security in Jesus. Money can't provide us security. Jesus gives us security. How? Because He vanquished a foe and brought us into a kingdom. We are now kingdom people. Friends, this means that we don't have to steal anymore. We're wealthy. We don't have to steal. We don't have to rip off God. We can be generous. We can be generous like the poor widow like the Macedonian church. Listen, friends, if anything other than the gospel is fueling your giving, I'm going to ask you to reevaluate your giving. Re-evalu- and I don't even care if you make a lot of money or give a lot of money like clockwork. Reevaluate why you give. Reevaluate why you give. It's important why you give, not just what you give. It's important why you do it. Listen, we get some big questions all the time, or I have over the years. I'm going to answer these two questions, and then we're going to end this thing. Because I think they're important. Because even if you do understand the gospel, and even though you might understand what generosity is, we come from different backgrounds and different church experiences, and one I get all the time is, Luke, how much do I give then? What's the pe- Okay, what's the bill? What do I give? And already I'd say you're asking the wrong question. Because if you say something like, how much of my money should I give God, you're still assuming it's your money. (laughs) Really what it should be is, how much of God's money do I get to keep? That should be the question we're asking. I'm going to pretend you asked that, right? Luke, I hear you. How much money that God owns do we get to keep, right? Well, that's between you and God. That's between you and Jesus. We don't teach a tithe here. Hear me clearly. We don't teach 10% here. Tithe, the word, it means 10%. In the Old Testament, there was not even a singular tithe. It was actually a trio of tithes that would land you somewhere between 23 and 30%. Right? That's what the Old Testament Jews would give. A lot of pastors try to resurrect the idea of a 10% tithe in the New Testament. I can't see it very well anywhere. I can see where pastors might tend to graft off of that, and I, I don't freak out on anyone for saying that. It's, it's not horrible. I'm just saying we don't teach it here. We teach something a little bit differently. I'll tell you what, I know why pastors teach it, though. The average, if you were to take all the people in the church in America that give, so anyone who does not give, take them out of the equation. They don't exist. If you've given $1 up to a $1 billion to the church in America in the last few years, if you put them all in a blender and you crank out an average, your average giver in the American church gives 2.3 up to 2.5% of their annual income. 
2.3, and hey, by the way, in the Great Depression, it was 4.4. That's a totally different sermon too, by the way. 4.4. We give away between 2.3 and 2.5%. So if I'm a pastor and I think I can give them a number, I could give these guys a benchmark. You have to hit this. You've got to hit 10% or you're not honoring God. What does that do to our budget? If everyone falls in the line, it quadruples our budget. Pastors are just glad to get 10%. That's why they teach it. We don't teach it. We see the call to be sacrificially generous and rich in our giving, and this might mean different percentages for different people. I know this might be new for some of you. Listen, if you're a single mom, you just lost your car, or you're sick all the time, 10%, it, it might break you. That might, be, that might be not so much faith, but risk. There's a difference between risk and faith. That too is a different sermon. I'd love to preach that someday. There's a difference between faith and risk. It might be too much. 2% might mean you saying no to a bunch of things. Then again, 10% might not cost you anything. I know people that can give 20 and 30% and not really have to say no to very much, if anything. I've actually met people that have given over 50 and 60% of their income, and they don't say no to anything. And I'd say that's a lot of money. still isn't sacrificial. still isn't sacrificial. Statistically, in America, 10% should not be a golden standard. Hear me, it should be a floor. It should be a floor for most of us. Your average American, 10% requires us saying no to very little with minimal sacrifice. I won't teach that as a statute that pleases God or anything, because it doesn't. Jesus pleased God. I'm just giving you numbers. Here's another question I get. Luke, am I supposed to give everything to the church? No, I don't think so. I don't think so. I can't see it anywhere in the Bible anyway. I, I can't see where we are commanded to do that. And straight up, there's some really cool things happening in the world. <laughs> really cool things that are not the local church that God is moving through and blessing in the world. Right? I will say the greater bulk of what we give as a family is to the local church. The greater bulk of it. Now we write checks to things that are overseas. We write checks to things that are in Knoxville, outside of Legacy, or even outside of everything. We, we just write checks. And we'll do that forever, always, from time to time. But the bulk of our giving goes to the local church. Why? Because wherever your heart is, there is your treasure. You're the people I do life with. Knoxville's my city. This is my people. This is my mission. This is my community. It's easy for me to do this. It's easy for us. This is where we do life. The city is where we live. My heart is here, and our treasure chases after it. It's easy for us to say that. A little bit of a rabbit trail here. The people that I run into that are thieves in both time, talent, and treasure, so they don't give God any time, they don't give God any talents. They don't give God any treasure at all. They just steal on all fronts. They also usually have a struggle owning a church and a people. They basically rent the church. They rent the local church. Some of you here, you might be that person, by the way. So let me help you if that's you, okay? When you rent a car, the last thing you do is go and get the windows tinted, right? Who does that? We don't even get air fresheners for them, right? We just roll down the window. We're not going to spend any money on it. We don't even want to put half a gallon more of gas in the thing than what we got it with. We spend no money. We aim for all the speed bumps as fast as we can. We leave all of our Chick-fil-A in the back seat because who cares? It's not our car. We go and turn it in. But then whenever you turn the car in and you get your own car, it's usually a lot older with a lot more miles, right? But don't we take care of that thing? 
now we do get the windows tinted. Even if your car is too trashy to do that. Listen, some of you, you shouldn't have spent the money on the tent job. It didn't help your car, right? <laughs> we get new rims. We get that spoiler we saved up for weeks to get, right? We get all kinds of stuff. A lot of people rent the church. They aim for the speed bumps, they abuse the community, and when they're done or whenever they get challenged, they bolt and they bounce and they rent cars for a really long time. It's usually the same person. I usually find that in the same person. Maybe if some of you have been guilty of robbing God and being selfish and trying to own rather than manage, maybe the problem is that you're just not connected to a faith family. You're too committed to yourself that you haven't dropped an anchor. You haven't said this people is my people. You're also probably not connected to God's mission in the city. Knoxville doesn't belong to you either. It's just the people you live. It's just the service you attend. This is one big reason that we are always trying to get people situated in good churches, even if it's not ours. Lots and lots and lots of people we've helped find a home church that is not here. Because the real win for us isn't to build an army here and convince everyone that this is the, base, the best place to be. It's to get them somewhere where they can be a contributing, investing person who has owned that body, that is giving, that is not renting anymore. That's what Knoxville needs. It needs more churches with less renters and more owners. That's why we're so big on it. And I'm closing right now. Some of you have made a bit of a hobby trying on different churches and renting churches. Not just for a few weeks, but for years. Right? I always challenge people, listen, you should give it a shot for six or seven weeks. I bump into people that are real excited after week one or week two. Oh, I love this church. It's awesome. I'm like, that's great, man. Right, give it a few shots. Give it like seven or eight shots. Wait for us to preach a couple bad sermons, right? Let's do that. Show up to a few living rooms and see how weird we really are. Let's do that before you throw all of your chips in and say how much you really love us. But years? Friend, listen. If you're shopping for a church for years, the problem is not the church. Straight up. Quit renting the car. Come on. We'll help you, by the way. We'll help you find a good church. We will. I mean, I mean that in all seriousness. We'll help you find a good church. Some of you, you give great gobs of money right on time, but your motive for doing it is sick. It's not rooted or anchored in the gospel at all, and we'd ask you to reevaluate your giving. Reevaluate. It is important. It's even important to us. You think it'd just be important if we just got the digits, right? We looked at our account and it's flush, that that would be enough for us? It's not. It's not. Just as much as I'd hate for you to show up out of legalism, I, I would hate for you to give out of legalism. It's crazy. Reevaluate why you give. Reevaluate why you do it. Some of you give very little because of the sacrifice of saying no to things that you still worship. I would point you to the gospel. I will point you to the gospel. Look what was spent. Look what was spent. Look at the wealth you have. You don't have to steal, friend. You've been given everything that you're spending money on, that you're trying to get. The identity you're trying to grab after, the security you're trying to get, the comfort you're trying to grasp, it's already been given to you. You've already got it. You've already got it. Some of you, you give nothing. And I would only submit to you what God is in Malachi, stop stealing. Stop stealing. That's not some ploy for me to get you to stick cash in the box on the way out. Overall, whether you never come here again or whether you come here forever, stop stealing. Stop robbing God. Some of you are spiritually bankrupt. You have no currency spiritually. 
And I would submit to you that you need to know a royal son who came bearing treasure, who came bearing the thing that your heart has always pined after, the thing that you've always hungered for. Now, it's a strange currency because it doesn't give you any spending power here so much. But it's the life of God beating in your own body. It's being rescued from your own depravity. It's being rescued from the judgment of God. It's being added and adopted into a family that is royal, has royal blood in our veins. It's being brought into a community that we don't deserve to be in. You need to know Jesus. He needs to rescue you from your poverty, spiritually, your poverty. Go ahead ahead and stand with me. I'm going to pray us out. We reserve the bulk of our worship for after the service. For times like this, times like this, I want you to reevaluate. I want you to think about what the Word of God has said to your heart. What have you heard? What might be different from the person next to you and what they heard? What have you heard and how will you respond? So as we worship God in the songs, we have communion back there. And just during the time, during any of the songs, feel free to filter back there and filter back to your seat. Take it with family, take it with roommate. We love taking community in, or taking communion in community. It reminds us of what the gospel has done and is doing and will do for us. Um, so we invite you, if you're a Christian, to take community. Listen, but if you're not a Christian, and you are the one I'm talking to when I say the word spiritually bankrupt, we would not invite you to take communion. We'd invite you to take Christ instead, to take Jesus. And we will be here to talk to you about it if you have questions. I'll be standing at the back over in that corner if you have any questions about what Christianity means, or what Jesus means, or what salvation means, or, or any of those things that you might not be um, well-informed about. I'd love to help you with that. For the rest of you, I've given you prompts. I'd love for you to think about that. Right? Let's pray. Father, thank you so much for your goodness to us. Thank you so much for the treasure that you've spent. God, I've not given my son. I've not given my son, especially not for a people like me. God, you understand treasure. Lord, you own everything. You understand treasure, and you understand what it means to give the best of it. And you did it cheerfully. You didn't do it out of obligation. You weren't strong-armed into the cross. You did it cheerfully. Father, you did it sacrificially as well. Father, how you sacrificed as your son cried out from the cross. Lord, we love you and we thank you for your generosity towards us. Lord, help me. I have to ask myself, even from my own heart, even from my own heart, help me be generous correctly. Lord, I've been conditioned over a decade on giving, like clockwork, giving. How easy it is to slip into autopilot. How easy it is just to click the button and say, pay now. How easy it is to write the check, give the cash. How easy that is, Lord. Lord, that I would look and use it as a an act of worship, not like a tax or an exaction, but a form of worship. Lord, help me see where my giving can grow. You tell us in 2 Corinthians 8 to excel in our giving. Lord, help us to excel in this, to grow in this, to be more excellent in our giving. Help me, Father. Lord, we love you and we thank you for your generosity to us. Thank you for your love for us. And it's in your name that we worship and celebrate and sing. Amen.